All right, if you need a Bible, raise your hand. Someone will bring one to you, but we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We're working our way through the book of 1 Corinthians, uh, something that uh, we've been doing for a couple of weeks now, so you already kind of know the general outline of the book. First six chapters, Paul's responding to bad reports he got about this church that he planted in Corinth. And then from chapter 7 on, uh, God is going to be speaking, or God, through the Apostle Paul, God will be speaking, uh, answering questions that that particular church had for him. And so we'll just see how that book divides out like that. But for the first four chapters, we're actually going to be looking at one specific bad report within the church before we move on to the next one. And so we're still in the midst of that first bad report. And that is that they as a church have been divided and quarreling over who their favorite pastor is, who their favorite minister is, who their favorite missionary is. And so you're kind of forming teams and they were saying, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Cephas, or I am of Christ. And so Paul's been slowly kind of uh, uh, knocking that argument down one piece at a time. He's going to continue that for us here today. In chapter three, uh, he says this, I, brethren, could not speak to you as spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not able to receive it. Indeed, even now you're not able, for you are still fleshly. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? And are you not walking like mere men? For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not mere men? What Paul's going to be showing us in this chapter today, in chapter 3, is that we shouldn't be mo- uh, boasting in who our ministers are. Uh, they're just simply servants in the church. Instead, we should be boasting in God because he's the one who gave us our belief. He's the one that actually causes us to grow. He's the one that brings actual growth into the equation. And so uh, he starts out by letting this particular church there know uh, that he sees them as an immature church. He sees them not as, as overly spiritual, but he actually sees them as, he says here, infants in Christ who he had to give milk to drink. Uh, he's describing them as nursing infants. That's a little bit of an insult, I would think, that they might have taken it that way, that they might have received that as an insult. Uh, but it's really, it's not terrible when you put it in the grand scheme of things. Remember, Paul had planted this church, but it had only been a couple of years before this that he planted this church. So really, pretty much everybody in that church is pretty new to the faith within the last couple of years. So they are young in the faith. But the point Paul's trying to make is you can't stay young in the faith. You need to start growing in the faith. You need to start moving beyond milk and start moving on to meat. You need to stop being fed and have somebody feed you. And it's a common illustration throughout the New Testament. The reason, though, it's important here in chapter 3 is when he looks at them and he sees their jealousy and their strife, he realizes that they're not mature. That's the evidence that they're still immature. That they have all this jealousy and this strife going on in their church. And so I would say that there's a pretty good indicator, by the way, of any church at any time in history. When it's filled with jealousy, when it's filled filled with uh, people warring and quarreling against one another, that to me would be a sign that the church is fleshly or even immature. And that something needs to happen there, that that church needs to grow spiritually in maturity to get beyond that kind of thing. So when he sees this problem going on in Corinth, he diagnoses the real issue is they're just not very mature as believers. 
Well, the maturity comes first from getting the milk of the word. In 1 Peter chapter 2, a uh, great little section there. He's talking about some of the struggles that come in the church. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2. I said it different than last week so that I didn't end up making horrible jokes about tutus. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2, uh, but he actually starts here in verse 1. Therefore, put aside all malice, all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. You see, the milk of the word isn't an insult, but that's just how you grow. You start with the milk of the word, the very basic bringing in the word of God. That's how you grow as a believer. But you have to, to move beyond this idea that you're being nursed or bottle-fed and start to move into this idea that you can begin to feed yourself. Well, Paul's concerned. If he gives them a very deep concept here, that they're going to choke on it. Now, they're just not ready for solid food yet. If you've ever uh, raised a child or been around people who raise children, you recognize there's kind of this weird phase there where you're just not really sure if they're ready for solid food yet. And the way you find out is they pick up an M&M off the floor that you did not know was there. And then you hear these little gaggy noises and your finger is in, you're doing the sweep. They taught you the sweep first thing and your finger's in the throat and you're pulling it out. You're like, nope, they're not ready. They're not ready yet for solid food. And then six weeks later, you look over and they're like, you know, Bugs Bunny munching on a carrot. Now what's up, doc? And it's just no problem all of a sudden. They're just slowly growing in their maturity, their ability to handle solid food. Well, this is how you start to see maturity in believers. They have to move from being given just milk where they begin to take on solid food and begin to eventually even feed themselves. Even as you see a young child grow, you start out with the smaller chunks of food and every time you're like, here's your hot dog and you have to chop it up into these little bitty sections because they can't have a whole hot dog. Because they don't understand you have to chew that thing. They just try to shove it all the way down, just straight to the belly. That's just where it goes. They don't understand that they have, they have to slowly learn that process. So you're teaching them, I'm going to chop this up for you. And you have to say this over and over. You need to chew that. Keep chewing. Keep chewing. Don't put any more in. Don't, don't put any more in yet. Chew that up first before you now swallow it. Okay, now you can have another bite. It's kind of like that with people. As Christians, we start with the, the milk of the word, but as we start to mature, we get to the point where we can handle more of it and we can begin to feed ourselves. And one of the fears I have for a church in general, our church specifically, but modern churches in a more generalized sense, is that we've come to this place in the church where people feel like the only time they ever really need to get into the word is on Sunday morning when the pastor serves it to them. When the pastor bottle feeds it to them or nurses them the word. That's the fear that I have, that it's just kind of that slow thing that's happened in the church where people kind of forgot that they were supposed to mature beyond that and begin to feed themselves. And it's again, I know I've been hammering this every week for a while now, but this is the reason I keep going back to what I want you guys to do is to be reading the word in advance before you get here. So I'm in chapter three this, ne this week. Guess which chapter I'll be in next week? chapter four. So my hope is that next week you'll have already come in here having read chapter four, just read through it every day over the course of the next week. You're beginning to feed yourself the word of God. And over time, you'll realize that you're able to handle it yourself, understand it yourself, comprehend it yourself, apply it yourself. 
You'll be maturing in your faith. That's where that maturity comes from. Now, the opposite of that is brought up in the book of Hebrews, chapter 5 and chapter 6, where you just only have somebody else feed you the word, but you never do it yourself. And so the author of the book of Hebrews, some believe it's Paul, but at the very least, we know the Holy Spirit revealed it. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11, concerning him, we have much to say. It's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. You've come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he's an infant. But solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching of the Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works, of faith towards God, of instructions about washings and laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. Well, it's interesting to me as he goes through this, again, he points out the, the milky side of it that's there, but you have to move beyond that. And his concern here with the, the Hebrews that he's writing to is that they either have moved beyond it and gone back, or they just never got mature in their faith. And the interesting thing about that, he then describes for us what maturity looks like. Like, here's the level of things that he considers to just be the milk. In chapter 6, this is just the milk teaching about the Christ, who Jesus is. Repentance from dead works. Faith towards God. Washings. Laying on of hands. Resurrection of the dead. Eternal judgment. Those are the foundational things that you need to hear, that you need to grow in before you can really begin to comprehend the deeper things of Scripture. Some people have this kind of weird idea that the deeper just means I talk about strange doctrines. Like I'm just going to spend all my time talking about this one little word here, and I'm going to use a big word so everybody knows I'm mature. You know, you've got, you got to have these basic things down first. And then you can kind of build on top of that foundation of those basic things. That's where you really start to see growth and maturity within the body of Christ. And he says that lack of growth there is why they have divisions, why they have fights in their church. Because the people are just not that mature. Now, I want you to understand there's always going to be a certain level of immaturity in any good church. Because any good church is going to constantly have new people coming in, some of which have never even heard the scriptures before. This whole Jesus thing is new to them. Their, their mom invited them, their grandma invited them. A neighbor invited them to church, and they're like, what is this whole church thing? I'm going to go figure it out. So you're always going to have immature people in the church, but in a healthy church, you also have mature people. And the mature people now can help the immature people grow. I love how he says that in Hebrews. He's like, by now you guys should be teachers. You should be teachers. In other words, it's, a, it's an anticipation that the individual who grows in their faith, who matures should in some way be invested in teaching other things or other people the things that they've learned. Those older, more experienced believers should be investing in the younger, inexperienced, immature believers. That's something we should see happening naturally within the church as people grow and mature. Well, Paul's 
pointing out again that they have this problem because they're still having the same argument. I am of Paul and I am of Apollos. You're just acting like everybody else in the world, picking sides and choosing teams. And we need to move beyond that. Verse five, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So then, neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God who causes the growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. Paul's going to change the picture on us now. He's been talking about infants. He's now going to describe the church as a field. He's then going to describe the church as a building. He's then going to specify that that building is the temple of God. And then lastly, he's going to end up by saying, but ultimately, you all just belong to God. It's the temple of God. You all belong to God. But he's going to be using all these various illustrations to help them understand the foolishness of dividing over who it is that you celebrate, who it is that you kind of boast about or brag about. Oh, well, my pastor is so-and-so. Well, I've been listening to this pastor on the radio, and he's way better than pastor so-and-so. I've got a cool pastor. My pastor's smarter than your pastor. How foolish is all that stuff? Bragging about who your pastor is, getting excited about those things. Because who are those people really in verse 5? They're just servants. They're just servants. He's basically knocking them down in your brain a few notches. Pastors are not designed to be superstars. Ministers are not designed to be famous. The word ministered literally means servant. That's it. They're just servants. And so it then lays out this picture of the church now. He's illustrating the church is saying it's like a field. I planted. Apollos watered. God did the growth, right? So now he's this picture of this. He wants you to envision your pastor as just a servant in the field. Just out there, one of them's planting, one of them's tilling, one of them's watering, one of them's harvesting. But they're all just serving in this field. They're just servants. They're your servants. But here's the crazy thing about those pastors. Not one of them can make you grow. They're not capable of it. Who's the one who gives the growth? Well, it says here in verse 6 and verse 7, it's God who causes the growth. It's God who causes the growth. And who do the servants really belong to? It's God's workers. And it's God's field. He's going to move on to a minute. His next illustration, it's God's building. It all belongs to God, and God's the one that causes the growth. He even says at the beginning of this, it's God, it's the Lord who gave us the opportunity to believe. Why would you celebrate the servant when you could celebrate the master? That's like going into an amazing restaurant and the food is just perfect. And then you say to the hostess, you did amazing today. 
And the hostess is like, all I did was point you to the seat. Like, there's a chef back there slaving away. Isn't it weird we don't tip the chef? Like 500 degrees back there, sweating, not over your food, I promise. (laughs) Just sweating through their clothing, right? Running around like chickens with their heads cut off back there. Just to get your food out to you. They do all this work, and then as a guy who waited tables all the way through college, I might have a lot of tables, but this was my job. I'm going to go do it again for this person. You just pick it up from here and you take it over there. Now, I have a degree in this in the military. I have a degree in logistics. You know what I did in the military? I was in the warehouse and they would say, I need something. And I would pick it up and I would carry it over to their office and I would give it to them. I have a degree in logistics, right? Real fascinating stuff, right? No, the guy that made the thing I'm delivering, that's the impressive guy, right? The God's saying the same thing. We get excited about the people that are delivering the message. But man, God's the one that's doing all the real work. Now there's a requirement for the servants to be diligent, to work hard. We should. That's why he's using this picture of servanthood. But it's all designed, hopefully it goes back to the Lord gave opportunity. The Lord causes growth. It's his workers, his field, his building. That's where we should be celebrating. That's what we should get excited about. In verse 10, it says, According to the grace of God, which was given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, and another is building on it, but each man must be careful how he builds on it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, If any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire. The fire itself will test the quality of the man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. And if any man's work is burnt up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved yet as through fire. Do you not know that you are a temple of God, that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. So Paul is going to switch over now from working in the field to now he's going to describe himself as a master builder. But again, even as he's building, he's laying out the foundation. Somebody else is going to come along later, and they're going to build on top of that foundation. And what we'll discover over time is the foundation strong or not. And he says, if the foundation is Jesus Christ, then it's a strong foundation. But if the foundation is the amazing personality of your pastor, what a snappy dresser he was, how cool his animations and illustrations were, that stuff doesn't last. That's not the things that last. Some of you may or may not know the history of our church, but the guy that planted our church is no longer here. He was here, he served here for a number of years as the senior pastor. And then literally overnight, he was gone. And some people mistakenly say, wow, Sean, you did an amazing job keeping that church going. The reason it stood was he built an amazing foundation the foundation of Jesus Christ. 
That's the reason the church stood, because the foundation was solid. Now, look, he was imperfect. I'm imperfect. Maybe next time you guys will get it right, you'll have a perfect pastor. We each have some imperfections, some things we do well, some things we don't do well, whatever it is. But we have to keep going back to those things that are important, the right foundation. Remember the song in children's ministry? The wise man builds his house upon the rock. Right? That's what this is talking about. We build the foundation of the church on the person and the work of Jesus Christ. We keep going back to the word of God over and over and over again. Because this is what makes the church solid. This is what makes the church strong. And it will be examined. It'll be examined, I think, in a couple of ways. One is just the test of time. You'll just find out over time whether it was a sturdy foundation or not. You'll find out over time whether or not the people building on it were building on the right things or not. But specifically, what he's talking about here uh, is that there will be a judgment that will come. It says in verse 13, each man's work will become evident for the day will show it because it is revealed with fire. Uh, That imagery is actually pointing to the end of times where God will actually judge everybody according to their works, not to see whether they're saved or not but that they can be rewarded for the things they have done for God. And basically what he's saying is each of those pastors will be judged someday, but it's not to be judged by you. They'll be judged by their work, whether it stood or not. And he describes it as this furnace, this fire that'll come in. And those things that are forever, gold and silver and precious, those things will stand up to the fire. But the things that weren't firm, the things that weren't built on Jesus Christ, the wood, the hay, the straw, those things will burn up. And then what's left is what that pastor will be judged on. I think it's true for all believers, but in this case, he's just applying it to the ministers of that particular church. But God will be the one that judges successful or unsuccessful. God's the one that gets to judge those things. And then he'll even reward those, he says, who did a good job. All the work that was left over, there'll be a reward for them. But I love it, the way he lays it out. It's almost as if it's a warning for pastors. In verse 15, if any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. But he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. There can be a smoking section in heaven. You're just going to be like walking around like, do you guys smell something? There's going to be some poor pastor walking around who's like, man, I barely made it. I got saved, but I didn't do much after that. I built this entire church, but I built it on myself. And then when it's examined, all that stuff got burnt up. And all that was left was my faith in Jesus Christ. And that's why I'm here. That's how the church is. And all the other stuff kind of burns over time. It disappears over time. It'll be judged at the end of time. The things that stand strong are the things of the foundation of the person and the work of Jesus Christ. He continues on with this idea of a building, but he's going to describe it here in verses 16 and 17 as a specific building. He's going to actually say that the building that they're building, the church that they were building there in Corinth, the church that we build now, is a temple of God and the Spirit of God dwells within it. So if any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. He wants them to see themselves as a church, as being holy and set apart for God. 
And how dare you take that holy church, God's people, how dare you divide them up by focusing on unholy things, arguing and fighting over unholy things about who's the better pastor. No, this is, this is the temple of God. Now, I've misapplied this in the past because Paul uses this same language of, of, of being the temple of God to talk about individual Christians, which I think is absolutely true. It's used other places in Scripture where individual Christians are the temple of God. But in this case, also Peter does this in his writings. He's talking about the church as a whole. A reminder for us that this church, as with all churches, is indwelled by the Holy Spirit of God, which makes it holy. And it's a warning then to those ministers, but also to those who are fighting within the church. Don't mess up what God made holy. Don't defile what God made holy. It'll bring about destruction for you. Now, I, I love how he leaves that just hanging. He doesn't describe what that destruction is. We don't know if it's the destruction of their flesh, the destruction of their soul. He doesn't go into great detail there. He just kind of leaves it out there for us to worry about. Just a little warning, just a little guide rail for us. Just kind of keep us on that straight and narrow path. Let no man deceive himself in verse 18. If any man among you thinks he is wise in this age, he must become foolish so that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness before God. For it is written, he is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the reasonings of the wise that they are useless. So then let no one boast in men. For all things belong to you, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the word, I'm sorry, the world or life or death or things present or things to come. All things belong to you. You belong to Christ. Christ belongs to God. Ultimately, what he's getting down to is this idea that we shouldn't be boasting about our pastors. We shouldn't be boasting about the wisdom of men because the wisdom of men is foolishness to God. And so he does one of these things that when you first hear it, it sounds profound. And then you think about it and you're just like, wait a second, what? And so you can just imagine some guru on TV late night for 1995. You can get his special system to change your life. And he'll say something like Paul says here at the beginning of this. If a man thinks he's wise, he must become foolish so that he can become wise. Oh, that's deep. Wait, what? If a man wants to be rich, he must first be poor. Oh, wait, what? If a man must be famous, he must first not be known. That doesn't mean anything, right? Like when you just read it at first, you're like, what is this foolishness that Paul's saying? That doesn't make any sense. What he's trying to do, though, is draw a contrast between the wisdom of men and the wisdom of God. Uh, essentially, what he's saying is, if you think that you're wise, it's nothing compared to God. And if you think your pastor is wise, it's nothing compared to God. He's a fool compared to God. And so if you're looking at your pastor as if this is the one who's going to give me growth, this is the one that's going to help me become this great, amazing Christian. This is the guy. He's going to help me believe. He's going to help me overcome. He's the one that's going to do all these things because he's just so smart. Well, first of all, if you think about that about your pastor, you probably go to a different church. But, um, <laughs> but in a general sense, he says that that's all messed up. 
I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Cephas. God looks at those guys and he says, they're just fools compared to me. He quotes two passages, the first one there out of Job chapter 5 and verse 19, he says, uh, he is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. And then he says this from Psalm 94, the Lord knows the reasonings of the wise, that they are useless. The smartest man on planet earth is just a fool compared to God. If you're looking at a man and saying that's where wisdom comes from, Confucius say, you're going to be confused. I set you up for that, didn't I? That's pretty good. Just came right out of the top of my head there. Now, if sarcasm counted, sarcasm, I just didn't even say the word right. Man, I'm a mess. If sarcasm counts, I'm up at the top, right? But come on. But this whole idea that you're going to look at a person, that they somehow have all the answers to all your problems, God says it's foolishness. You've got to figure out what real wisdom is. Real wisdom comes from God. And if that's where real wisdom comes from, and if he's really the one that causes people to grow in their faith, and if he's really the one who actually gave us the opportunity for belief, shouldn't we be boasting about him instead of other people? Shouldn't he be the one that we're bragging about? This final statement here that he says in verses 21 through 23, after he says, so let no man boast, he says, all things belong to you. Paul, Apollo, Cephas, the world, life, death, things present, things to come, everything belongs to you. But you belong to Jesus Christ. And Jesus belongs to God. So you might look at this and say, that's my pastor, that's my pastor, that's my pastor. But you belong to God. Why don't you celebrate not the person who belongs to you, but the person whom you belong to. We boast in God. And so it brings me back to what I said at the beginning to summarize. You don't boast in ministers. They're just servants of the church. You boast in God who gives belief and causes growth. I think all pastors because we're just people like everybody else, have the exact same problem I've had my whole life. And that is, um, I don't know if you just call it a low self-esteem or an inferiority complex, but I've spent my whole life just waiting for somebody to validate me, to tell me I'm good, to tell me I'm smart, to tell me I'm handsome, all those things, right? And then as soon as they do, I'm like, oh, you just feel like you have to say that. That's not true. You're just trying to make me feel good. This has caused actual problems in my marriage. I'll be honest with you. It's called actual problems. She will say something nice to me like, you're so handsome. I'm like, you just feel obligated to say that because you're married to me. Who wants to be married to the non-handsome one? So you're just going to keep telling me I'm handsome. To the point where she said, I can't compliment you. Like, I just can't do it. Because you always like knock it down. That's not true. You're just saying that. You don't really believe that. It's kind of this duality. It's the same thing. To be wise, you have to be dumb. Validate me, but stop saying nice things about me. Right? And so we all go through kind of this struggle within ourselves 
where we want to be built up, we want to be validated, but as soon as somebody does, we realize we're probably not as great as we think they are or as they think we are. But what happens when you become a pastor sometimes is you start to hear that every single day. Great sermon, great message, love your church, you're doing a good job, keep up the good work. God's using you mightily. You start to believe it if you hear it enough. And before long, you start to think to yourself, I'm a great preacher. I'm a great pastor. I've built a great church. Look at all the people I've saved. Look at all the people I've grown in their faith. And all of a sudden, the church becomes about the leader of the church, not the leader's leader. Jesus Christ. It's a real danger. I've thought about this a lot over the years because of that. Because like, how can somebody like compliment a pastor without building him up? It's a really hard thing to do, right? Like, I want them to feel like they're doing a good job so that they don't just leave the ministry altogether because that's an everyday option, right? Like at any point, I'm like, hey, Walmart's hiring. Like, <laughs> I would love to just go home at the end of the day and not even think again about what happened at work. That's what it was like before I was in ministry. I would go to work, I would work all day, I would work diligently, I would work hard, I would get home. My wife would say, how was your day? I'd be like, I don't even remember, don't even care. As long as they keep sending that paycheck, that's all I care about. Right? Then all of a sudden you get into the ministry and all of a sudden you do care. Oh my goodness. People's souls are on the line. People's marriages. People are hurting. Oh my goodness. And you just, your brain won't shut off and you feel all this obligation. There's some real dangers in all of these things for pastors. So how is it that I want people to like encourage me without building me up? Like how do you do those two things simultaneously? So I thought about this a lot. The way you do that is you don't boast about me. You boast about God. Let me show you what it looks like. I preach a sermon. Obviously, it's witty, it's clever, it's well-organized, it's logical. I just look cool doing it. As long as I don't turn sideways, and then I just look bumpy. And so you want to encourage me. The way you do that is you remember something I said about God, and you repeat that to me. And you say something like, Man, you're right, Pastor Sean. Ministers are just servants. Man, I just realized today that it was God who gave me belief. I just realized today that God's been helping me grow. I just realized that we serve an awesome and powerful and amazing and wise God. You see what that does for me? It builds me up because I realize they got the point, right? They got the point. So I feel like I've done a good job, but what it also does is it puts the right emphasis on the right person. And God is great. We boast about, we brag about God. And that's what gives us unity in a church. When the most important person, the most important concept is all centered around God. 
Amen? Well, Father, help us to be unified. Help us to remember what a great and amazing God we serve. Lord, I do thank you for my own salvation. I thank you that you use servants in this world to reveal yourself to me. Father, I'm so blessed that as a church, we can be built on the solid foundation of your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, I'm thankful that whoever we have preaching, as long as they're preaching the word, will be able to grow in the truth. Father, I thank you that you are more powerful than I could even begin to imagine, that you're the God who spoke into nothing and created everything. You're the God who sustains everything. You're the God that makes it safe for us to be on this this rock that hurls through outer space at who knows what speed and yet doesn't crash into anything. Father, I'm so thankful in your wisdom that you allowed your son to pay the price for our sins. Father, I'm thankful that our church exists, that people want to be here to hear the word, that people want to grow as your spirit reveals things to them. Father, we love you because you are deserving of our love. We worship you because you're deserving of our praise. So we want to close by worshiping you in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.